You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. Afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And I'm back after almost a month and a half of meeting conflicts, wedding anniversaries, and trips to Montana, and more meeting conflicts. Um, I'm back. And we're back with the Bo's Nose Show, where we come to you live every Wednesday at 4 o'clock, where we take your questions by phone or by email or by Facebook. And hopefully we have a conversation, talk about what you want to talk about. But if you don't call in to the show at 646-721-9887, I'll talk about what I want to talk about. And boy, I've got a lot to talk about after a month and a half. And I don't think I can cover everything that happened in that time. As a legislature, you know, it seems like I left town and so did the Republicans. Uh, yeah. It was pretty crazy. Next thing I know, I'm getting all these calls and all that. You know, do you support what the Republicans are doing? Are you going to come to the Timber Unity rally? Uh, it's like I'm in Montana. <laughs> Had a great time in Montana. What a beautiful state. Got to go through uh, the drive to the sun on, on in a red bus tour and uh, in Glacier National Park. Um, got to go fishing one day on the Flathead River. It, that was just uh, really great. Uh, it's a trout were striking surface flies. Um, what a bunch of fun. <laughs> but you don't want to hear about my vacation. We want to talk about some things that are happening here in Lane County. And of course, Last weekend was the 50th anniversary of the Oregon Country Fair. And we were getting a little concerned because we knew this was going to be a big year as it's their 50th anniversary. And we'd had some problems in the previous couple years with late night noise and traffic jams and cell phone service and a few other things. And uh, so we tried to do a little bit of planning ahead of time and work with the campgrounds and the, and the Country Fair folks and the city of Anita and I even got ODOT um, involved to allow them to open a gate to try and divert some of the traffic off of Suttle on the day where the off-site campgrounds have moved in on the, the Thursday before they start. And it seems like things went a little bit more smoothly this year than they have the previous couple of years. Only heard about a couple things. I understand that Darling's Reunion Campground got a little loud on Friday night around 2 in the morning and had to have a little visit by uh, the the boys in green and um, that there was um, a traffic issue on Jeans Road at one point down at Somalt where it kind of shut down Jeans Road for, for a little bit and that caused some problems for some of the local residents. Um, 
but I haven't heard a whole lot more of that. And I also heard the cell phone. Even though Verizon supposedly quadrupled their equipment on their Bolton Hill Tower, um, they uh, they still um, couldn't quite handle the traffic, apparently, because I've got notifications from folks that, that said they could not get cellular service and basically shut down a couple of local businesses that depend on Verizon for internet connections. Um, and particularly when you think about nowadays, a lot of businesses use those square devices and those are sometimes hooked up through cell service, not through, you know, a landline or anything. And uh, that kind of really hurts some of those, those retailers if they can't run that square. Um, so, but overall, I heard it really went well. I understand record attendance at, at the fair. Um, the campgrounds were all booked completely, the offsite campgrounds. So they made their, their um, money uh, and, and uh, it didn't seem like there was a lot of problems with trespass or, or any sort of uh, vandalism or, or whatever. So we'll see, still early, but you know, if you, uh, live out here in the Vanita Elmire area and have something you want to report about the Oregon Country Fair, just give me a call, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. So um, Country Fair seemed to go pretty well. And, you know, I got I got a new toy in that six weeks also. Um my wife and I got a new trailer, an RV, and we've actually gone out twice with it and uh, and had to go do some, some maintenance work this afternoon. That's why I'm kind of dressed down in a T-shirt. It's a T-shirt my wife gave me, and I just, you know, kind of want to show folks, you know, what the T-shirt says here. Not quite the right font, but if you're a... GOT fan, you know what that's about. Um, <laughs> some folks have accused me of that, uh, <laughs> and and of, and of having some personality similarities with uh, Tyrion. So, uh, yes, uh, I know things. <laughs> but had a good time in Montana. Had a good time, you know, taking a few. So a little bit time off for our anniversary and all that, um, you know, getting our, our new RV, new to us, I should say, it was used. Um, and, uh, you know, being an Oregonian, you know, going out camping, you know, we, we stayed at Darling's Resort down there in Florence and we went up to Diamond Lake for a couple nights, um, just enjoying Oregon and probably going to bug out this weekend and head over to the coast again. Um, but there's so much to talk about outside of my time off and the Oregon Country Fair. We've got all sorts of things going on. You know, the, the legislature finally, you know, got the Republicans to come back into town and, and in one day finished a whole lot of work. And one of the last things they do is something called a Christmas tree bill and, and passing a bunch of the budgets. And one of the budgets they passed was for the Department of Corrections and included in the Department of Corrections budget is the budget for the Community Corrections Act funding. And that is the funding that comes to counties to run 
their supervision of folks that are on parole and probation for felonies that would otherwise be in prison. So the, the counties run this program on behalf of the state. It was given to the counties through a Senate bill 20-some uh, years ago um, with the promise it was going to be funded. And in fact, built into that bill was if they don't maintain the level of funding, the counties can opt out and give the service back to the state. And I think they may have gone below that level. Um, our, our legal analysis says they did. Um, so there may be some counties that hand their parole and probation um, services back to the state, but it doesn't just pay for our parole officers and their, their offices and support. It pays for jail cell beds for uh, sanctions because, you know, when you're on parole or probation, you don't always, when you get a violation of parole, go back to prison, which is what they call revocation, or, uh, you know, lose your probation and get and have to serve your sentence. A lot of times they just sentence you to a weekend in the, in the pokey, <laughs> you know, so you can't go out and party, um, you know, a couple nights in jail, just to kind of remind you what, what happens when you don't follow your rules and and follow what you're supposed to be working on during your your um, your time of supervision because um, they usually have some kind of plan they're working through um, you know victims restitution uh, drug treatment you know cognitive behavioral therapy there's various things that these folks are working through the state basically funded that Community Corrections Act funding for the 36 counties at a level that was actually lower than the previous biennium. When, as part of that, that Senate Bill 1145 that originally created the system we have in Oregon where the counties provide the service and the state pays for it, in that bill, every six years, there's a study is done to, to look at what is the actual cost per person under supervision to supervise them. And they do what they call a time study where they do these, they, they randomly pick several folks and they, they document all contact time and office time and, you know, the vehicle, you know, you know, vehicle mileage for the parole officer, everything around that particular individual. And that time study basically said they were supposed to fund the community corrections at at about three hundred and and thirteen million dollars to adequately fund the system. They only funded it at two hundred and sixty nine million. So basically, fifty million short. And um, they that that's a lot there. And what it created is a problem for the counties because. We have uh, what we call a local public safety coordinating council that budgets that money because that money goes to several places and yet we have to agree on how it's going to be spent. You know, the, the county actually has parole and probation in one department. Those jail beds are provided by, by the sheriff's office. Um, we have some mentoring and treatment that's provided by sponsors. We have other drug treatment that's provided by emergents. We've got sex offender treatment being provided by another provider. Um, and we were paying for things like 
the Buckley Sobering Center and um, the detox uh, services out of some of this funding. And um, that funding level that the state set caused us to have to make cuts in our budget, which meant um, we're projecting not filling four position parole officers positions over the next uh, biennium. We're reducing um, amount, amounts in our sex offender programs. We're um, made a severe cut to Willamette Family Services in their um, eliminated all funding for detox and reduced the funding to the sobering center. So the total cuts to Willamette Family was 90%. They've been getting close to $300,000 uh, a biennium through the Public Safety Coordinating Council, and what we ended up approving for them was $35,000. Um, that's a real significant cut to some really good programs. I mean, the Sobering Center doesn't um, cure people from their addictions and all that stuff, but it keeps people out of the emergency room, which would be a $2,000 stay, or out of being booked into jail, which would be three or $400 worth of costs, you know, by the time you go through all the arrest, you know, the officer's time for the arrest, the actual night in jail and every, all the processing, we can put somebody up in Buckley for less than a hundred bucks a night and, and get them to the point where they've got past, you know, their severe um, impairment and are no longer in danger of, of dying because, you know, the people that get put there are usually so impaired that they're, you know, have to be watched to make sure they stay breathing, <laughs> those sort of things. Um, and, you know, they're watched by trained personnel um, at the sobering center. It, it really um, saves a lot of money in the long run. That's why we were paying for it, but it was getting really hard to track whether or not the people coming through the sobering center were actually on supervision and how, you know, what percentage was and whether we were funding a percentage of that program that was higher than the actual um, people under supervision that were utilizing it. Cause we have to survive an audit by the state of how we use those funds. Cause those funds are specific to be spent on services to people under supervision of either parole or probation. And um, unfortunately, that the Buckley House is taking a severe cut. I'm hoping there's another place in the state's budget they may be able to get some grant funding, but it's a competitive grant, and it's not sure they'll get it. So might be time for folks to kind of talk to, you know, now that the local legislators are back in town and are starting to hold some post-session town halls, um, maybe go there and ask them why they didn't fund community corrections at the time study level and how they're going to make sure the sobering center stays viable here in Eugene and Springfield and Lane County to prevent having to pay for people to stay in emergency room or the jail overnight? You know, ask that question because, you know, unfortunately, you know, um, 
our, our delegation wasn't that strong of advocates for community corrections. In fact, what's really sad is, um, you know, um, Senator Jackie Winters, you know, who passed away during session, she was the real champion for that program. And she would have made sure the funding was there. She would have been fighting for it in that Christmas tree bill. Um, yet, um, we just, you know, didn't have her voice. We did have somebody on the subcommittee that was setting that budget, um, Senator James Manning, but um, he's still relatively new and I don't think he quite realizes the impact of underfunding that program and wasn't a very strong champion in that program. Although I understand that the dollar amounts were actually being dictated from high up in the uh, in the caucuses, um, basically the Senate president and, and the Speaker of the House were telling folks down in the committee, this is what you're going to approve. And if you don't approve it, we'll just find somebody else to serve on the committee. So can't quite blame James, but, you know, you know, you kind of got to decide if you're going to buck your caucus sometimes and, and fight for something. And this could have been something I thought he could have fought for. Um, because I don't think there's anyone that doesn't like the idea of maintaining good supervision over these former felons and um, and fel felons that just are um, on, on pro uh, probation um, and trying to make them good citizens again. We've, we have really turned that whole pro and probation function around here in Lane County over the last um, six to eight years, and it really has improved our recidivism rates. Um, our, we have less people that are reoffending as we take them through some of these programs like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but that's just one little piece of the legislature. You know, we also know that taxes were big in the legislature. And it sounds like the gross receipts tax is, is not going to get fought by a, a business group because the legislature um, believes so much in the citizens' right of referral that they threw in a special bill to make sure that if, this, if this, somebody did collect enough signatures to refer the tax, that the election for that was going to be held two weeks after Christmas. Not, you know. And that's basically what doomed it. And uh, the business group said, you know, we just can't. They they stacked the deck against us. Um, you know, they they've got all. You know, they're holding all the cards and the rules. You know, it just it's interesting. You know, the, the first people you hear talk about how much they believe in democracy and and the will of the people usually is the Democrat Party, but their legislators, you know wrote specific rules to limit that that ability to have that one referred, put emergency clauses on almost all the legislature they passed to, to make it, you know, to make it impossible to refer something to the citizens. Or that at one point they were considering a new rule that would have gotten rid of the single uh, signature petition sheets that you can download electronically and fill out yourself and, and return um, on an initiative. They wanted to, you know, tried to make it harder to approve initiatives, tried to make it hard for referrals, 
in, in fact, in some places, completely blocked referrals by uh, abusing the emergency clause. So that that's kind of you know the state legislature you know and you know that generated all sorts of things from the Republican walkout to one of the largest demonstrations that Salem's ever seen in the timber unity um, uh, demonstration at the Capitol where they brought in log trucks and tractors from all over the state. Um, pretty amazing stuff uh, going on there. But they did pass the gross receipts tax, which means everything in Oregon is going to get more expensive. Um, because that's going to get passed on to you and it's going to happen at multiple levels where a business selling something wholesale to another business is going to have to mark that it up to pay the gross receipts tax. Then that retail, that business might be a retailer that purchased that product and they're going to have to mark it up and pay their version of the gross receipts tax. Um, so you're going to see everything in Oregon get more expensive for the gross receipts tax by about $2 billion biennium about a billion dollars a year in, in in higher cost consumer goods in Oregon so they're going to take a billion dollars out of Oregon's economy I think that might have an impact yet you know on top of that the city of Eugene decides to come up with an income tax and un unfortunately it was just announced that the folks that were trying to refer it couldn't get enough signatures to do so probably because most of the people that are most upset about it can't sign the petitions because we all live outside the city but work inside the city. Yeah, I'm a little angry about the city of Eugene's income tax. You know, they have consistently fought Lane County's efforts to revise the Metro plan so we can form a district that doesn't include the city of Eugene to fund our rural patrol but we have to revise the Metro plan in order to be able to do it. And the city of Eugene has been the entity that's fought that. Yet they turn around and pass a tax that I'm living outside the city of Eugene to pay for their police services, but only because my employer, Lane County, is in Eugene, I'm gonna be paying that income tax. I'm not happy about that. So, you know, I, I, I'm, seriously considering proposing a serial levy to support the sheriff's office uh, uh, police services that will also cross into the city of Eugene and you know we'll let the city of Eugene folks pay for our rural patrol if they're going to charge us rural folks to pay for their police services um, you know <laughs> what's good for the goose should be good for the gander see that or I think I'm going to just um, move my office from in town out here to uh, inside my district, outside city of Eugene limits, which I think that's going to happen with a lot of businesses. Um, and I'll avoid paying the income tax that way. Um, so we'll see what happens. But you know, I just, it really bothers me that choice of method of taxation to support a service for inside city limits where you're gonna ask folks that, that live outside of the city to pay that. Um, you know, that that's kind of taxation without representation. I think we kind of fought a revolution over that, didn't we? Um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. So but let's go on to something that's good news. 
you know, I've, I've covered, you know, this parole probation issue and some taxes and, you know, the, the, the legislature's battle against citizens' right to initiatives. Um, there's some good news. We got to announce today, I've known it for a little while, that Moody's, um, you know, the, the, the bond investment rating company uh, that you hear about, they have upgraded Lane County's bond rating to AA1, from AA2 to AA1. Now, it wasn't but two years ago we got upgraded from AA3 to AA2. So this is our second upgrade in, in the last couple of years, and it is the highest bond rating Lane County has ever had. This is despite the fact that we have the third lowest per capita local revenue of any county of the 36 counties in Oregon. We've managed to put our financial house in order, you know, with the reduction in the secure rural schools payments and the ending of SRS. Um, we have basically gotten our financial house in order, held down our costs, you know, worked to reduce our, our, our insurance costs and some of our benefit costs, you know, held down our, our cost and structurally balanced our budget, rebuilt our reserves to the point where we've been able to get two increases in our bond rating, which basically says, if you loan Lane County money, um, loan it to them at, at a lower rate because they're not a big risk. It's basically about how much risk of repayment we have. And, and AA1 is, you know, it's one down from their best rating, which is AAA. Um, so we are at the second highest level of Moody's rating. So we only have one more we can go up. Um, but, you know, this is the same county that was on the Secretary of State's list of counties at financial risk of collapse back in 2014, I think the Secretary of State put us on there. And I believe it was Secretary of State Kate Brown that put us on that list. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's pretty good news because what it means is if Lane County issues debt, um, that we have the ability to finance that debt at a lower rate. We've already utilized the previous um, upgrade in our bond rating to refinance some older debt, and we saved millions of dollars in interest payments for the taxpayers of Lane County by doing so. So it's good news for the taxpayers that we got this Moody's uh, upgrade in our bond rating, and it, it's you know good news. Uh, basically says. Looking backwards, we've been doing a great job of managing Lane County. Now, I have some concerns about moving forward, uh, whether we're going to continue that good financial management. Um, and one of those things is, you know, we're being asked to do some, you know, by public comment to jump into all sorts of things that are going to either end up costing the county money or, you know, just wasting county money. Um, and I'm a little concerned about whether we're going to be able to keep keep maintaining our discipline to maintain the good financial management of Lane County. Um, folks came in and testified a couple of weeks ago at a county commission meeting that made the news about the uh, birth center 
uh, that Peace Health is proposing is actually closing. I shouldn't say proposing, they are going to close. Um, now, Peace Health is a um, you know, non-government private entity, and they made a decision as a business decision. And part of, the, part of the reason they did so is they're kind of stuck with the fact that the birth center is midwifery. Now, under state law, midwives are licensed to perform services under the supervision of an OBGYN, of an obstetrics. Similar to a physician's assistant, can't practice on their own. They have to be supervised by a physician. So they have to have somebody they can go talk to and all that stuff. Well, there's quite a bit of conflict between the OB community and midwifery about when somebody should go in for cesarean or not. Um, and so it's getting difficult. It's getting difficult to have that that. OBs that are willing to supervise midwives. And and on top of that, the birth center's been losing money for Peace Health. So with all those difficulties, they made a business decision to close the birth center. Yes, I know it served some families really well. And there is a time and a place for midwifery and non-hospital birth. Um, and I understand the need to try and keep that open. But I, you know, it's one of those things where it's a decision of Peace Health. Peace Health is licensed through the state, not the county. Um, we don't have a lot of jurisdiction. Um, and you know, the only other request has been for the county to, to take over the birth center. It's not something a service the county provides. We do provide some health services through our federally qualified health clinics and our behavioral health folks, but we're we're really good at primary care, dental, and mental health. We've never done, you know, any sort of birth and pregnancy um, uh, type work, um, and. There's probably with the, the people we do um, primary care, dental, and mental health generally are on the Oregon health plan and, and through Medicaid. There's not enough Medicaid patients that utilize the birth center to make it a viable, um, you know, place for us to go. Let alone the fact that what we what we're hoping to do with our federally qualified health clinics is to expand them into rural areas to, to really provide some of that, you know, lack of provider of medical provision in those rural areas. In fact, we're looking at opening one in Cottage Grove. This will completely take resource and distract us from doing, being able to open those rural centers, you know, because after Cottage Grove, I'd really like them to look at Florence um, as their next federally qualified health clinic. Um, so folks don't have to drive to Eugene that are on the Oregon Health Plan. But that's kind of um, getting in the weeds a little bit, but that's just kind of one of the places where I see 
people come in and give testimony and the board's like, oh, we should have staff look into whether the county could take that over. Now, financially, that might not work out so well because we probably can't charge enough to, to afford the services. The, the private clinic that was, was the tie for the OBGYN uh, supervision of the clinic has, has, has dropped their um, relationship with the clinic. So we'd have to go find an OBGYN to supervise or hire them internally. We're already having a lot of difficulty hiring doctors uh, just for our clinics, the primary care doctors. Now we're going to get into OBGYN, which, by the way, has the highest you know, insurance rates. And we're not sure unless they're going to only provide care to Medicaid patients, which we've already said we may not have enough of, we may not be able to be covered by the federal government waiving, you know, covering our, our um, malpractice, you know, possible malpractice. And that's a place where you get the largest suits and the most of them is in the whole birth process because you're dealing with babies and their potential earnings over a lifetime or the potential cost of um, care for something that, you know, got messed up at birth that's created a long-term um, medical cost. So huge risk involved in that. And, and you know, that, that just, you know, financially getting into that is going to be very difficult. But, you know, 10 people show up to a board meeting and our new board majority wants to go that direction. And uh, it's getting a little scary to see that happen pretty regularly. Um, but, and, it, you know, the other thing we're starting to get is um, a push to declare a housing and homeless state of emergency. Somebody got an online petition going where we're getting these, you know, signatures. You know, I don't even know if half of them are citizens of Lane County or not, um, but we've gotten almost 100, I think, so far of, you know, petition to declare, asking Lane County to declare a housing and homeless, this state of emergency. First of all, I'm kind of, you know, what is that? Um, and then what does it do? So um, some of our staff looked into it really quick because, you know, see what other jurisdictions have done. Basically, most of the jurisdictions that have done this, because they don't have anything in their charter or code that says if you declare a state of emergency, you get these extra powers or extra funds. It's just a symbolic declaration. So the real question is, is Lane, and Lane County doesn't have any of that in our charter or our code. There's no extra powers we get by making an emergency declaration of a state of emergency in that way. Because it's not like where um, when we declare an emergency around a natural disaster or some other event where there's meaning to that, where there's state aid that we get access to and um, there's federal aid ultimately that may come if the governor declares the state of emergency for that event. That's a completely different system. This does not access that system. We don't suddenly become a, you know, FEMA funds don't suddenly start coming to us if we make this homeless, housing the homeless declaration of emergency. So 
just declaring a state of emergency over that issue is just basically virtue signaling. It does nothing. And then it opens the door to what other state of emergencies are we going to have? A people, you know, if 100 people submit petitions and want us to declare a state of emergency around, um, oh, let's see, let's think of something that might upset a few people. Oh, let's say immigration. Do you think that, you know, we're just going to take that up too and do, you know, even though it's just going to be symbolic if we declare it, you know, if you're going to do, you know, if there are 100 people coming in for one thing, 100 people coming in for the other, you start getting into where people could ask, be start asking us to do all sorts of things. And we have to kind of be better about telling people, you know, Lane County has a certain role in government. We're not a municipal government. We're not the federal government. So um, we really have to pay attention to that role and make sure that um, we're working uh, towards our primary functions, not just um, chasing after squirrels because folks come in and give us some test public testimony. You know, we just developed a strategic plan. We use that strategic plan over the last several years and we're able to uh, successfully manage our finances because of that and get an upgrade in our Moody's rating. So we have to be careful about going around that tree. So I want to remind folks that you can call in any time with a question or comment at 646-721-9887. Just press one that lets Robin know you want to get in on the queue. It looks like we have somebody in the queue, Robin. Is that somebody that wants to, to come on the show? Yeah, we have Chris waiting for you. Hey, Chris. What what you want to talk about? Hey, Jay. It's Chris McAllister. How you doing? Chris McAllister, how you doing? I'm, hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing all right, sir. Just wanted to call and talk about that homeless emergency and some of the items you mentioned earlier in your show, if I could. Sure, sure. I'm, just, I uh, I'm really interested. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, going. Sorry. I just sorry. Uh, it's really I, easy uh, to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to share that, uh, whereas I believe that you are correct, where there is there's a certain kind of formality that a declaration can have, and our code doesn't have some of these items uh, put into it. We do have the strategic plan that is for homelessness that the county has approved and put out for, but we don't have a lot of drive sometimes behind parts of it. We've had some deadlines come and pass, but staff hasn't been able to really direct attention towards some of these items that could be really easy fixes, such as expanding our safe parking program, which is only allowed to be done on government property. But as there's not been instruction by government to make some of these happen, we still have 20 spots that are not filled. Yet we have over 47 RVs right now with families and uh, people who have dogs that there's no legal answer for them to be in the county. There's no legal place for them to be. Some of them are on their meds. Some of them are in the parole system and they can't be in a safe place to be supervised at. We have a problem that's looking for an answer, and we have answers that are looking for direction. And this emergency-type situation, which I'm not so keen on, 
because we need those ordinance changes that we've been asking for for over four years, but we can't really get the direction and the support from it. They say, wait for the federal government to bail you out. Wait for Governor Brown to come bail it out. But some of our homeless people are in trouble and in the uh, judicial system right now because of ODOT pushing people away from the roads, because of uh, Governor Brown's executive order against the rivers. We're having people getting tickets and being put in the system that didn't need probation and parole when their main sin, their main trouble is they have no legal place to go. There's seniors, there's parks, there's drug uh, court where they get uh, distributed out to places and their insurance don't cover the treatment. Our, our system is, is horrible at trying to fix the problem with preventative measures. We only seem to do reactionary and repressive measures. And so I really agree with you about we have to do something different. We have to support these probation programs. We have to support systems like sponsors. But the way to do that is to use an emergency to direct staff to solve problems, to be creative, and to bring solutions that aren't no, as was presented with uh, the use of our parks for winter strategies. But how? How do we lower this, uh, this recidivism? How do we lower people not being able to make it to the community health care centers? So I want to just throw that out there to you because it is an emergency. And I just lost another person last week waiting for a place, and they've been asking for help from the county since October of last year. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree that we need to keep moving ahead with, with our strategies. But one of the things I, I guess is meaningless declarations um, that don't have any teeth really don't change that. We, we've given the direction yes, to staff. In fact, we, we put it in our budget. We're actually in the process of hiring um, the, the I, I hate the term, that because that, we haven't figured out a good thing to call the position, but the homeless are. Um, that the yes, city of Eugene and Lane County, and in fact, they're in that process right now. We got three other positions we're hiring in our health and human services to staff up uh, and try and execute the TAC um, strategies. And the TAC strategies, one of the things they, they focused on was just what you're saying is is, is prevention, diversion, or like you know the the early diversion of folks um, and and rehousing, rapid rehousing versus letting people become chronically homeless um, is a really important thing because uh, we have roughly 130 people entering the system as homeless every month in Lane County. And, and we need to kind of turn that cap down if we're ever gonna have much of an impact with the other parts of our system um, you know, that you're talking about. Um, but I, I don't know if uh, declaring a state of emergency does moves any of that any faster than, than what we're doing right now. Um, yes, sir, I, I yes, believe that, it that, does. And this is, if I may, I can tell you how it does because it's not being used correctly in its interpretation. It allows the county to say, we have a direction. The TAC report, I was actually on the TAC report implementation committee. I was one of the only ones who wasn't an elected person or an, uh, a staffer, or, uh, but I was actually a lived experience voice on there. And I'm actually opposed to how much money we're spending on these positions because we could use that same money and create temporary transitional uh, placements for people who have been in need for now. They are dying without access to services, and the services providers have been asking not for more positions, but for more support and more direction, the ability to do their job. We are, we are bound by laws that can be 
sorted out. We are bound by permitting processes that could be negated by direction from the elected government. This, this is not only toothless based on how it is allowed to be interpreted. If the county electeds make and craft a declaration that gives action and gives direction, it has teeth. It is only when we make it as, a, a, as meaningless as pool day or national puppy day <laughs> that it has no teeth. It's all about how the administrators and the staff are allowed to interpret it and how the expectations are met with outcomes and studies. Recidivism has gone down by public housing. There's studies like the MOVE study in Maryland that show that this can work. It's just we look and we pick the things that lead to the least passive resistance, and that's why I feel like we need an emergency. I was skeptical, and now I've been sold based on how hard it's been to be able to help people with actually itemized needs and declaration from the state of needing help, and they still can't get help with over a year passing. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is frustrating working through the system. You know, yeah. one of the things, you know, that the TAC report focused on, and you're probably aware of this, um, is that our system here in Lane County, we've got some good pieces of the system, but we're not moving people through the system well, which is why we don't have the entry into the system as, as available. And part of what those those positions are is to, to try and um, coordinate that movement through the system and, 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 and improve that, that throughput and getting, you know, we're not moving people from one, you know, from temporary initial housing into transitional housing into permanent supportive housing. We, our, our temporary, you know, emergency housing is full and no one can move into it. So we've got to figure out mm -hmm. how we can keep those moving through the system. So I, I don't think diverting the, the staff money completely into just temporary uh, uh, beds of some kind long-term is a healthy way of, of, of dealing with it. Because all you do is you'll build up more of those beds, and if we're not moving people out of those beds, you're locking them into, into situations. Yeah, they may not be on the street, yes, but they get get past that that emergency shelter situation. It, it's a tough question. It's hard because there are people that need just a place to stay tonight. And we could focus all of our resources on providing just that, you know, whether it's a, a place to park an RV or a cot in a mash style tent on Highway 99. Yeah, that might keep them from, you know, keep them off the street tonight and not getting a citation or, um, you know, getting victimized by, by somebody else out there. But it's a short-term fix because a lot of those people need long-term, you know, to be moved into more long-term um, supportive housing and, and, you know, retraining and, and help, helped and assisted in much more um, intense ways. And, and those, you know, um, overnight parking and, and um, mash tents and all that don't provide that, that case management that moves those people along. So if we focus all our resources on that, we're, we still have those 130 people becoming homeless every month. And, and, 
and we and we just have to continually focus more and more resource on that temporary. So there has to be a balance. And I think that's what we're hoping yes, to try and do is, is balance, you know, we've, we, we've expanded, you know, our winter strategies um, quite a bit over the last several years. We've added you know, well over a hundred beds to some of those winter strategies, but yeah. And we're, and we're working on that indoor um, 75 bed shelter. In fact, the city of Eugene's, um, you know, looking to commit um, well over a million dollars to that here relatively quickly. And the county yes, already, already the money. So, yeah, I, yes, I understand but with, the, with the expansion of the, uh, the, with the expansion of those seat beds, though, they were expanded and then they were waived back. So the people who were in need, the dog owners and the sick, now are no longer served by those beds. So there are 100 beds that may not be used because the programming for them isn't for the people who need those temporary fixes. They're, they're, they're being used for people who have long-term needs. So I agree with you that the focus is wrong and it needs to be balanced. And right now we're way balanced on one way. I really appreciate you bringing awareness to this topic, though. And I really hope that you um, look at other options about how it has been explored. Great. Well, I appreciate calling in, Chris. You always bring great insight. And I really want to appreciate the volunteer work you do um, on advisory committees around this issue because you you speak with knowledge and you speak with um, experience and you also are you're currently assisting folks that are homeless so you really understand the issue very well and I always when you when you call I listen. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Have a great day. How are you too, Chris? So you see how easy that is to call into the Bo's Nose show and, and control the subject of the show? Just 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets Robin know you want to get in on the conversation. Chris is uh, um, a really uh, interesting uh, gentleman, uh, and I've been bumping into him on homeless issues um, for about two or three years now. And I think when it first came when we were looking at expanding the um, overnight parking program into the urban growth boundary area between city limits and the UGBs um, in the uh, uh, River Road and Santa Clara areas. And he actually came out to a public meeting that I held out there to talk about um, that and kind of give some perspectives from his, his point of view as somebody that was formerly chronically homeless um, and has, has, you know, done the hard work and, you know, gotten off the drugs, got himself straight and all that stuff, and is now actually providing services to homeless people. Um, but he's been a great member of some of our advisory committees because he can speak from where those people are now because he was there himself. And, um, and I think he does bring up a good issue is there are a lot of people that are really difficult for us to temporarily house the folks that don't want to give up their pets. You know, I know it'd be tough for me um, as, as my cat just came through here a, a second ago uh, to, to, for me, if I ended up homeless, what I would do with my pets and how limiting that might be on where I could go. Um, and those folks, you know, in RVs quite often, are in their RV because they still have a pet with them that they, they just don't want to give up on and um, make some hard, hard to place. 
the folks that have medical needs are difficult to place because they may need more than just a cot in a tent. Um, so it, it's really um, unfortunate that some of those cots and tents are really being just occupied by the, the chronically long-term homeless that have no desire to not be homeless. They're still in full-blown addiction. The only reason they're utilizing those tents is just so they don't freeze overnight. Um, that's not a good situation. Um, you know, that doesn't help them. It doesn't move them along in their, in their dealing with their addictions or getting them back into some kind of stable housing. It's probably one of the, the most difficult problems we have. And we've talked about it here, particularly when the Seattle is dying video came out about what do we really, what's the effective way of dealing with this issue? And one of the things I've constantly brought up is people need to get housing quickly. You know, that's one of the important things. Our FUSE pilot program, which is our frequent user system engagement program that dealt with some of our most chronic users of the jail, emergency room, and police callouts that we know are, are homeless, got them into um, low barrier housing, basically got them in a, in, a, in a hotel room type situation, and then tied that with intensive case management, where we started dealing with the addiction issues, with the physical health issues that come from living, living rough, um, you know, cause you know, diets aren't good. You, you end up with all sorts of physical ailments and the mental health issues, you know, dealing with the person that has PTSD, um, you know, dealing with the, the untreated, um, bipolar, uh, disease that they're treating with drugs, <laughs> you know, instead. Um, and, and, and that, and thus the addiction, all that has to be done, but that particular program showed that we could stabilize those folks, get them into that housing and provide that service for far less than what it was costing us in jail stays, uh, call outs from, uh, cahoots, EPD, um, EMS, you know, uh, and trips to the emergency room, all of that went down with those folks far enough that it looked like we were saving just in our little quick study about $21,000 a year per person we put in that program. And that was a very conservative number, that 21,000. We think it could have been as much as 50,000. So yes, we need to get that quick shelter, but it really has to be tied to that that case management. And we just need to get that that system working. I agree it needs to happen quickly. I just I'm just concerned about doing something that's purely symbolic. Now if we want to go through some hard work first and do some code amendment um, to make an emergency declaration actually have some teeth, or better yet, we're getting ready to update our strategic plan, wrap it into this strategic plan update. Although our number one priority A1 on our strategic plan is to increase housing. <laughs> so 
So it's not like it's not already in our strategic plan for Lane County. So um, hopefully that kind of gets to, you know, why, I, you know, you know, to declare a state of emergency right now, I think is not effective and sort of a waste of money and basically might make people feel good. And then if we just keep doing what we're doing, uh, like Chris says, we need to change what we're doing. Just declaring a state emergency may not do that. So we either have to fix our code where a state of emergency means something and change and has teeth to it, or we need to maybe wrap this more into our strategic plan, which we're preparing to do a strategic plan update in the next six months. Of course, six months doesn't seem very quick um, when you're Chris and working with somebody that's been trying to get help for a year. So, um, but there is things that are already in the work, in the works. You know, we did that TAC report with the city of Eugene. We are working on that implementation. You know, uh, hopefully things will be getting better um, as, as we work through all this. So, um, you know, I haven't really uh, worked this through with Robin, but in the last couple of minutes, I want to kind of give my what were they thinking award for the day. And I don't know if Robin's got our, our, our logo up there on, on our, our what are the Bose knows what were they thinking award. Um, yeah, but he said he's sitting up there on your shoulder. Okay, I, I you know, because we, we're kind of having a little bit of technical difficulty where I'm watching myself live versus watching myself through the feed, so I don't see it because um, it gets really confusing to me if I turn on another computer with Facebook. Uh, so um, I have to give the award this time to the chair of the Oregon Republican Party. Recall efforts rarely are successful. In Oregon, it requires 300,000 signatures. Now, to refer a um, law that the legislature passed to the voters only takes 90,000 signatures. Now, the business group that was looking to refer the gross receipts tax basically decided not to do that because they, one, weren't sure they could get enough signatures, and two, they didn't want to invest the money. Now, that is a massively well-financed organization that has lots of resources where they can hire signature gatherers. Now, you're looking at gathering over three times as many signatures in basically the same time period to try and put somebody on the ballot for a recall best of luck in trying to get that done. So that's the first place you're probably going to fail. If for some unforeseen reason you manage to gather 300,000 signatures and recall takes place, those votes are rarely successful unless you have a couple things in place or a, a, one of a couple things. The person being recalled committed a crime. They're, suc they're successful in those ways. The commercial being recalled is in the middle of a huge scandal of some kind. You know, like, you know, infidelity and being divorced, and, you know, or, you know, 
relationship with a minor, you know, those sort of things. Uh, um, you know, business dealing, you know, fraud or something like that that wasn't quite at the criminal level. But it has to be serious because voters generally won't overturn an election result, which is what a recall basically does, unless there's crime or fraud or scandal involved. None of those things are involved with Governor Brown right now. She just did something and is trying to do something the Oregon Republican Party doesn't like. It's not enough to get a successful recall vote. So what all that you're doing is making Governor Brown get basically the politician's version of the red badge of courage. She's going to survive a recall effort, and she's going to be able to brag about it. So what were you thinking, Oregon Republican Party leadership, in starting a recall of Governor Kate Brown? Because it's not going to be successful, and all you're going to do is give Kate Brown a reason to raise funds. I'm sure the fundraising letters have already gone out. They're trying to recall me. Send $5 today, you know. Jay, if I may, a question to hold over for a few minutes. Sure. As I lose my voice, what would it take to um, redo the emergency clause? There was an initiative petition to do that, and they couldn't get enough signatures. So there was an attempt being made, and I fully supported it. But it would take um, either a, an amendment to the Constitution to define their need. And that's what that past one was, which would have required a three-fifths majority to, to put an emergency clause on a bill. You wouldn't just be able to write it into the bill to start with, which is what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it was called No Fake Emergency Clauses, I think was the effort. Um, that was about a year and a half, two years ago. I remember that, but I bet you it passed now. Yeah, it might. So maybe that, you know, yes, here's something you could do, Republican Party. Get behind an initiative petition, which you only need 90,000 signatures for, to fix the emergency clause and the abuse of the emergency clause. That'll be much more effective for the state. You know, that, that you know, you know, they stuck that emergency clause, you know, on a, on a bill to give driver's license to undocumented immigrants, as they like to phrase it, or illegal aliens, as other people like to phrase it. Um, even though the previous version of that, they didn't have an emergency clause, it got referred to the voters and got voted down by an overwhelming majority of the voters. This legislature put the same bill in the hopper, slapped an emergency clause on it, and passed it, and now we can't use the initiative referral system um, you know, that, that was built into our Constitution because of that abuse of the emergency clause. So, yes, rather than try attempting an unsuccessful recall of Kate Brown, fix the emergency clause, Oregon Republican Party. So that's about it for the Bose Nose Show for today. We covered a lot of ground. I got so much more I could talk about today because mm -hmm. I've been off for six weeks, but we'll be back next week here live at four o'clock from beautiful downtown Elmira. Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week.